0: a great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a Ph.D. holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. and welcome to history of the great war episode 187 breaking up the middle east this week a big thank you goes out to brian david and jacques for choosing to support this podcast on patreon where they now get access to special patreon only episodes like the one releasing this month discussing conscription in the british empire if that sounds interesting to you head on over to patreon.com slash history of the great war to find out more Last episode, we discussed some of the views and interactions of those in Paris as it related to the Middle East, both before and in the early stages of the Paris Peace Conference. We then also looked at Faisal Hussein's time in Paris, which as the representative of essentially the entire Arab world, was very important. Today, we will start digging into the consequences of the decisions made during the conference on the people of the Middle East and the former Ottoman Empire. The Arabs were hoping to emerge from the post-war world as members of independent countries, free from the shackles of European imperialism. Unfortunately, they were in for extreme disappointment. Basically, nothing would really work out like they'd hoped. In Syria, Arabia, Palestine, and Mesopotamia, the Arabs would almost always find that their dreams of sovereignty were usurped by the desires of the Europeans, be they British, French, or Jewish. All would come into the region and take control. In this specific episode, we will look at the post-war situation in Syria and Mesopotamia, which would eventually gain its modern-day name of Iraq. We will pass on most of the discussions about the Mandate of Palestine and areas that would eventually become modern-day Israel, because that is a topic that requires its own episode, which will be released here in a few weeks. While all of these areas have their own stories for this time period, they did all have one thing in common— They had all, just a few months before, been part of the same empire, the Ottoman Empire. So what happened to that? After the Ottomans had signed an armistice with the Allies, things began to move quite quickly on the ground. The first order of business was to send Allied officers, bureaucrats, and observers to move in to supervise the situation in Istanbul. This will be a topic we discuss in greater detail next episode, when discussing the fate of what is today the country of Turkey. But right after the war, the French and British started to occupy and control certain key cities. For the French, it was Alexandretta. It was seen as an important stepping stone for their presence in the region. Back in the conference, while everyone agreed that the Ottoman Empire needed to be dealt with, there was not exactly a great deal of urgency to get it over with. The matter was not discussed until January 30th, and then only obliquely, since it was only brought up when trying to hash out the mandates of German colonies. Lloyd George was pushing the idea of turning many of the areas that had been part of the Ottoman Empire into mandates for the various victorious powers. He would claim that the government in Istanbul had done a very poor job of administering and ruling all of the areas occupied by the Arabs, so that meant Syria, Mesopotamia, Palestine, and Arabia and because of this poor showing, all of it should be removed from their control. Of course, the Arabs were also not ready to really, you know, rule themselves, and so they needed the help of the Europeans, because of course they would. There was also the situation with the Armenians. Now, the Armenian Genocide was well known to the leaders in Paris and around the world, and so there was just a general assumption that an Armenia should be created. Then there were also discussions about creating a new state for the Kurds, a Kurdistan, although this would not end up happening. Once all of these pieces of the former empire were removed from the Ottomans, they would be left with the areas around Istanbul and Anatolia, and then a bit on the European side. While discussing all of these ideas with the Americans, Lloyd George must have forgot to mention, of course, forget... All of the little bits of territory that were promised to the French, the Italians, and the Greeks, which would remove even more territory from Turkey. Wilson found himself in something of an odd position during all of these discussions. Technically, the United States had never actually declared war on the Ottoman Empire, and so he did not really have any kind of mandate to discuss how it was dismantled. There was a piece of the 14 points that did address the Ottoman Empire, saying, quote, the Turkish portions of the present Ottoman Empire should be assured a secure sovereignty, but the other nationalities which are now under Turkish control should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. End quote. It's easy to see how what Lloyd George was proposing fit in with this framework, if you give him the most charitable possible interpretation of the concept of mandates, and that they would allow for quote an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. While broad strokes were easy to agree on, you know, just chop off all these areas and we'll figure it out, the details of the exact distribution of the mandates was something that the French had some real difficulties agreeing on. Now, due to these difficulties, the Supreme Council did what it did best in the early months of the conference. It kicked the can down the road. Wilson suggested that a committee be set up to discuss with military advisors and experts what should be done and how best the territory could be occupied in the short term. Further discussions would happen at that wonderfully nebulous point of the future. This subject would only make the agenda one time in February, on the 10th, which is when the report from the committees was completed and ready for presentation. However, it would not end up being discussed at that time because it was supplanted by a discussion about the borders of Belgium. The fate of the empire would then stay on ice for a few more weeks, until February 26th, and at this time it would only be discussed because it was on that day that the Armenian delegation was scheduled to make an appearance before the Supreme Council. The Armenians were in a very sad position. The genocide had been happening for years, they had been a persecuted minority in Ottoman lands for centuries, and very soon they would be targeted by the Bolsheviks. They placed much of their hope in the United States and in Wilson, with one American expert saying, quote, "...scarcely a day passed that mournful Armenians, bearded and black-clad, did not besiege the American delegation, or less frequently, the president, setting forth the really terrible conditions in their own native land." Unfortunately for the Armenian people, they would not find many nations capable of helping them. Armenia was just too far away too isolated, and was soon surrounded by forces that the Allies did not have the power to resist. The Armenians will make another appearance in our story when the Bolsheviks come a-knocking in 1920. After that meeting in February, the negotiations around sorting out the Middle East would once again be cast aside, while the details of the treaty as it related to Germany were starting to get hashed out. It would be revisited during May, at which point the British and French would finally get down to the business of hashing out the details. The British were at the height of their ambition in the Middle East, and that meant that they were very strongly questioning why the French should get Syria. The British were the ones that had fought in the region. They deserved it. This was a very commonly held belief in London, and there were even discussions that maybe the British could get the French to trade their influence in Syria for control of Istanbul. Now, these discussions did not get very far, but the fact that they existed as a concept is impressive. The French were planning a more indirect form of rule in Syria. They honestly were just hoping that it would be cheaper, because money was pretty hard to come by for the post-war French government. These hopes for a mostly hands-off approach would slowly change over the course of 1919, though, mostly due to the actions of the British. On May 21st, the conversations between Clemenceau and Lloyd George became very heated. Lloyd George suggested that France receive only a provisional mandate over Syria pending a report from the Commission of Inquiry. This really got Clemenceau fired up, and he accused Lloyd George of duplicity, since he had already agreed to other terms for Syria in private with the French. He also said that France would not cooperate with the Commission at all until French troops were actually on the ground in Syria. As the debate on the future of Syria continued to grow in intensity, Clemenceau threatened to reopen a few topics that were believed to be already settled, and the first one on that list was the fate of Mosul. Clemenceau had traded away Mosul to the British before the conference even began, and he now said that perhaps he wanted to reopen that discussion. This threat went far beyond just Mosul and its surroundings, because it would also cast the conference's eye on the entire area of Mesopotamia. Up to this point, the British had done a very good job of keeping everybody away from really questioning what it was planning for the region, and they really wanted to keep it that way. It ended up working out pretty well for the French, because they were able to get some concessions around oil from Mosul. Already at this point, Mosul was a focal point for oil in the region, and the British agreed to give a one-quarter share in the Turkish Petroleum Company in exchange for the French allowing two pipelines to be built from Mosul to the Mediterranean. The French also had to permanently abandon their claims to Mosul, but they did, and it was fine. With all of these negotiations with the British still ongoing, the French were also trying to work with Faisal. The idea from the very beginning was that Faisal would be in charge of Syria under the French mandate, but what exactly this relationship would look like was an open question, and both sides had very different answers. The French thought that they were getting total control of the region, and they wanted Faisal to mostly just be rubber stamping things, but Faisal thought he was getting an independent kingdom with just some light French assistance. These two viewpoints were almost entirely unreconcilable. It did not help that the French always sort of suspected that Faisal was secretly working with the British to undermine the French position. Negotiations between the two parties would continue for the rest of the year, with both sides seeing the other's proposals as completely unrealistic. A major change in the negotiations would occur in November 1919, because at that time Clemenceau lost the French elections. In the elections, the imperialistic factions within the French government gained far more control, and the new premier, Millerand, would take a more hardline stance on Syria and Faisal. This would begin a period where the French began to really control their mandates. Most of the mandatory powers at least put on a show to the effect that they were allowing self-rule in their mandates, but the French did not even try to lie at this point. When they moved in, they were going to take full military and administrative control, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. In Syria, they would use the rise of Syrian nationalists as an excuse to extend French power. There were groups within Syria, and I hope you're not too surprised to hear this, that were not huge fans of the fact that their country was basically functioning as a French colony. When they tried to change the situation, Millerand called them extremists and began throwing accusations at Faisal that he was working with them. He would write to the French General Guerreau, the leading French military commander in Syria, that Faisal was required to, quote, "...prove that he is capable of being obeyed by the Arabs on all occasions, so that our agreements are respected to the mutual benefit of all parties concerned." He has to offer more complete proof to impose his authority. If this is not forthcoming, we ourselves would be authorized to take any measures necessary for the maintenance of of order, the defense of the people, and the safety of our troops. Regarding the Shrefians, we certainly possess the means of of imposing respect for our rights." Along with these demands, which were created to be almost impossible to satisfy, Millerand also began working on changing the previous agreements between the French and Faisal and the Syrians. While the French were so concerned that Faisal was working with Syrian nationalists, he was, in fact, working with Syrian nationalists. Essentially, since the time that he had taken over as leader of Syria, the Syrians had been pressuring him to try and get more concessions from the French, Well, most of the more hardcore Syrians wanted to just declare Syrian independence, but Faisal was hoping to strike a balance between the two. Faisal feared that any declaration dealing with Syrian independence, or even Syrian rights in general, would lead to open war with France, which it almost certainly would have. Unfortunately for Faisal, as French control grew, and as their desires to grow their power grew even more, balance between the two sides became impossible. Faisal was forced to side with either the French or the nationalists, and he chose the latter. This led to the Syrian Congress proclaiming him King of Syria on March 7, 1920. This proclamation was against the wishes of the French, and Gerard was concerned about what it could mean for the French position in the region. He would write to Paris that, "...we remain under the threat of an attack which can be launched at any time. Everywhere, the political agitation caused by the proclamations of the Syrian Congress is extreme. In Syria, it is no secret that every means will be used to force us to recognize the decisions of the Congress." End quote. When news reached Paris, Millerand did not back down, and, he, and instead he took a hard line, saying, quote, The successive concessions which have been made have only resulted in emboldening our enemies and compromising our position. With this statement, the French doubled down on controlling Syria, and on May 20th, 1920, Gouard was informed that two more French divisions were on their way. When they arrived, he was instructed to launch a decisive attack against Faisal. On July 14th, with the additional troops now under his control, Gerar would send an ultimatum to Faisal. Faisal would actually accept this first ultimatum, which required many concessions from the Syrians. However, news of this acceptance would not reach Gerar in time, and the troops were already on their way to Damascus when it did arrive. He sent another order to halt the march, but by that point, Millerand was unwilling to simply call off the entire operation. Another ultimatum, this time designed to be rejected, was sent to Faisal. It demanded complete French control of Syria's military, political, administrative, financial, educational, and judicial systems. Again, this was designed to be rejected, and Faisal rejected it, and the march on Damascus resumed. The result was never really in doubt, and soon the French had control of the country. The Arab troops under Faisal's control were not much match for the French, and he was forced into exile in Palestine. Gourard, under orders from Paris, broke Syria into several different political units. French administrators were then put in total control of these units. Syria became a French colony, and any pretense of self-government was removed. While this move was successful in preventing the rise of Syrian nationalism, it would not result in a successful relationship between the Syrians and the French. French control would last for the next 25 years, but they would gain little from all of the resources and manpower that they poured into the region. so come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. While the French were trying to get a handle on Syria, all of the territory to the south went to the British. But before we talk about what they decided to do with Mesopotamia, we need to talk about Egypt and India. Egypt and India were incredibly important to the British Empire, for a huge variety of reasons, with geographical positioning being high on that list. However, there was a problem. In both countries, there were growing nationalist movements which threatened British power in both regions, and this was a big concern in London. Before the Paris Peace Conference even began, and really even before the war was over, the nationalist movement in Egypt was gaining support. By the time that the conference did start, hundreds of thousands of Egyptians had signed petitions supporting a free and independent Egypt. This movement was led by the Waft Party, which would be the leading Egyptian political party after the war. This movement would directly threaten British power in Egypt, uh, which, while not technically a British colony, essentially functioned as a British puppet state. The nationalist movements rapidly turned into a revolution. On March 9th, the British authorities arrested four leading nationalist uh, leaders, and they were all deported to Malta. Now, this action set Egypt on fire, and the next days, strikes and demonstrations swept over the country. The protests then turned violent. Communication and transportation infrastructure were attacked, and on March 18th, eight British soldiers were killed by Egyptian mobs. The British then imposed martial law and brought in General Allenby to manage the situation. They were then greatly shocked when Allenby reported that he believed that the British had to release the nationalists immediately. He believed that it was the only way that he would be able to work with the Egyptians, and he would have to work with them, for reasons that we will discuss after we discuss India. India was also in an uneasy situation after the war. In March and April 1919, there were large-scale demonstrations in many major cities, and the catalyst for these demonstrations was new legislation that had been put in place, which in essence indefinitely extended the powers given to the Indian government during the war. On April 6th, Gandhi called for a general strike across all of India, and against the wishes of Gandhi, these strikes would involve some violence. Just a week into the strike, a British officer in the Punjab city of Amritsar ordered his troops to fire into a large crowd, an act that would spark the Amritsar massacre. 379 civilians were dead and 1,100 were wounded during this action, and this act would move many moderate Indians to a belief that continued British rule in its current form was no longer the best path for India. Both the situation in India and Egypt were very important to British actions in the Middle East because they both demonstrated the limits of British power after the war. Allenby had to work with the Egyptians because the British army was rapidly demobilizing and the soldiers were adamant that that demobilization continue or even that it should accelerate. Allenby was losing 20,000 soldiers every month during the spring of 1919 to these demobilization efforts. In Egypt and Mesopotamia there were also problems with the cost of maintaining the armies in the area. Curzon would report to the cabinet during a meeting in the summer of 1919 that, quote, this fact did emerge. The burden of maintaining an Egyptian and an Indian army of 320,000 men in various parts of the Turkish Empire and in Egypt, or the 225,000 men excluding Egypt, with its overwhelming cost, is one that can no longer be sustained, end quote. This monetary crunch would cause Lloyd George to pull British troops out of Syria in September, hastening its transition to French rule. As for the Egyptian situation, it would not really be sorted out, much like other areas of the Middle East, until later, in this case April 1920, at the San Remo Conference, a conference that will be featured on another episode of the podcast later this year. Elsewhere in the Middle East, the British were deciding what to do with the three former Ottoman provinces of Basra, Baghdad, and Mosul. These three provinces had little in common with each other, but the British wanted to combine them all into one administrative area. Immediately after the war, the British leaders told their representatives in Baghdad to not let anybody in the area know that the future had been decided, and to make sure that they all believed that it was still up in the air. In fact, the most important pieces of that future were already set in stone. There had been some discussions about creating three different countries, or of splitting off just the Mosul province into a Kurdistan, but both ideas were rejected quite early. All three provinces would be formed into one whole. For anybody familiar with these territories, or even really just the 20th century history of Iraq, you will know that there were some serious problems caused by combining these three into one country. In typical European fashion, this action was taken because the British leaders were pretty good at ignoring the intricacies of the relationships between various groups in the area, groups that they were deciding the futures of. They assumed that the Arab Muslims all had a common identity and completely ignored the very important Shia-Sunni divide. Then, once Mosul was added into the mix, they ignored the differences between those two groups of Arabs and the Kurds. A similar mistake was made in Syria, where the Kurdish population was just thrown in with the rest of the country almost haphazardly. In Baghdad, there was some concern among local British officials that grouping all of these diverse groups into one country would create a situation where creating an actual representative government that actually functioned would be almost impossible. And they were quite right. This mix of people and the poor job done by the British in gaining their support meant that the situation in Mesopotamia in 1920 was very explosive, and the first explosion would happen in June. At that time, tribes along the Euphrates rose up against British rule in a rebellion, resulting in the deaths of 450 British troops and 10,000 tribesmen. In the north, Kurdish nationalists would also become more and more aggressive. This situation would continue until early 1921, at which point Churchill, then colonial secretary, went to Cairo for a conference on what should be done about the entire area of British control in the Middle East. The British leaders were divided on the value of Mesopotamia, but with Churchill among the powerful voices in favor of making it work, the discussion became what to do with these areas, not how to abandon them. The solution that was landed on at the conference was to install a king, an Arab king, onto the new kingdom that would be called Iraq. This king would be given a good amount of power so that he could control the situation. But where to find somebody who the British trusted? and who had any chance of being accepted by the people. Well, there was one person, Faisal Hussein. The British did owe Faisal at least something. They had sort of thrown him to the French. He was was also a pretty ideal candidate, all things considered. Faisal and his family had a reputation for religious tolerance, a really important trait in such a divided country. He also had the nationalist credentials to hopefully convince others that he was more than just a British puppet. Since it seemed to work so well, the Kingdom of Iraq was created with Faisal at its head. Everything was going to go great, right? Much like Syria or Palestine, this was a totally artificial country, mostly created out of thin air on maps back in Europe. And almost as soon as Faisal became king, he came into conflict with the religious leaders of the Shia majority. This pressure came mainly from the Mujahids, which, much like the nationalists in Syria, wanted greater and greater autonomy for Iraq. Faisal would spend most of the time between being named king and signing the Anglo-Iraqi Treaty in 1922, which formalized the relationship between the two countries, just trying to keep the balance between the British leaders on one side and the Arab nationalists on the other. In this task, he would have much more success in Iraq than in Syria. In 1924, elections would be held in Iraq, but they were, let's say, constructed so that the Sunnis, who were much greater supporters of Faisal, would be victorious. This would set up a long series of Sunni-dominated governments in Iraq, which was also a cause for a good amount of the country's instability. Gudita Fontana would have this to say about the reasons for this in the paper Creating Nations Establishing States, Ethno-Religious Heterogeneity and the British Creation of Iraq in 1919-1923. It would say, quote, The history of 20th century Iraq is largely characterized by the persistence of tensions between different ethno-religious groups and by the efforts of the Sunni-dominated central governments to impose their exclusive authority over the Kurds in the north and to politically marginalize the Shias. Tensions can be largely traced back to the artificial political and geographical configuration of the state of Iraq as created by the British between 1919 and 1923. While the path had been long and costly for the British, in 1925 it all started to pay off when they signed a 75-year contract with the Iraq Petroleum Company, which gave the British almost total control over Iraqi oil. In 1932, the mandate would be cancelled and Iraq would be given full independence, although the British would still remain in the country, and they would of course still have that majority stake in the oil. I'm going to try my best not to make too many comparisons to the modern-day world in these episodes. That just isn't what this podcast is about. However, it's hard not to see the similarities between the situation where a foreign power comes in, replaces the existing government in a region, makes sure that the new one gets put in place, realizes that maybe it isn't going to work out as well as they'd hoped, and ends up moving on. And, well, that's all I'll say about that. One other region that I will mention here at the end is Saudi Arabia. Last episode, I mentioned that Ibn Saud was not invited to Paris to his great consternation. Well, in May 1919, he started an open war against the British-backed forces of Hussein and Abdullah in the Hejaz. And these clashes did not go well for the Hashemites. The British sent T.E. Lawrence and John Philby to try and broker some sort of agreement between the two parties, but they never really had much of a chance. Ibn Saud was in no mood to negotiate with representatives of countries that he knew at that very moment were discussing arrangements in Paris that would leave him surrounded by enemies. Ibn Saud also had very radical supporters that he had to placate for the time being while he consolidated his power, and so he continued his push for Mecca and Medina. He would capture the two cities just a short time later, after the British had mostly washed their hands of the entire situation, tired of pouring money and resources into Arab infighting on the peninsula. In 1929, Ibn Saud would gain full control over the territories in Arabia, and he would found Saudi Arabia. At the time, the the area was thought to be mostly worthless economically, but then in 1938, oil was discovered, and the rest, as they say, is history. Thank you for joining me in this episode. I hope you will join me next episode as we continue to discuss what was done about the Ottoman Empire at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919.